This week on Broadway for Sunday, July 22nd, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Jan Simpson. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill.com, Broadway World, and NewYorkTheaterGuide.com. She also has her own podcast called Spotlight, which uh, just released a new episode. So, Jenna, good morning, and tell us about the new episode. Oh, good morning. Uh, yeah, that was fun. I got to talk with Ryan Duncan, who's appearing in Getting the Band Back Together, which is which started uh, previews this week. Excellent. So that is, that came out yesterday in the Broadway Radio feed. You can probably uh, find it in your podcast listening device if you uh, subscribe. If not, you can find it at broadwayradio.com. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Her podcast, Stagecraft, is part of the Broadway Radio Network, and she is also co-host of Theater Talk on PBS. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Good morning. Uh, just to let everyone know, Peter is at the Future Fest at Dayton Playhouse in Ohio, but we have pre-recorded his trivia, and you'll find that at the end of the broadcast. And where's Michael? Michael is having fun at some beach somewhere. I uh. do believe I saw <laughs> pictures of him on a beach, so he'll be back, I think, next week if he decides to come back to the... Um, the beautiful humidity of New York City and the exploding <laughs> steam pipes of Manhattan. Oh, Seriously, yeah. God, wasn't that scary? <laughs> can we blame that on the MTA? Yes, we can blame everything on the MTA. <laughs> Excellent. With us today, we have two very special guests. Peter and Will Anderson are with us. Uh, they are 2018 B- Bistro Award winners. They were uh, 2014 Drama Desk nominees with a little bit of a twist than we, what we normally have on here. They are musicians who have a, a month-long show coming up uh, in residency at Symphony Space on the Upper West Side, celebrating Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Hoagie Carmichael, and uh, Jimmy Van Heusen. So, guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, just for the listeners, why don't we get a sound check? Which one is Peter? Peter, say hello. This is Peter here. Hello. All right. And Will, say hello. Hello, this is William. Very similar, but we can tell you're brothers. And you're, <laughs> you're actually twins, right? Correct. We are identical yep. twins. So uh, thanks for joining us on Broadway Radio. Uh, let's get caught up on your past. You were from the Washington, D.C. area and ended up in New York at the Juilliard School. So is uh, ending up at the Juilliard School, uh, music has been a very big part of your life. Was it, uh, was it how you were brought up? Are your parents into music? Um, well, our parents are not musicians, but um, they're uh, music lovers. And they really encouraged us to, all the way. I mean, we really have them to thank for so much. Um, when we were in elementary school, they would, they would play music around the house. Um, not necessarily jazz, but blues and R&B and that kind of thing. And uh, we got so excited 
that we would um, kind of run around and and dance and and literally tear apart the house. Um, <laughs> we would take up take up the pots and pans and and push over the furniture. We just couldn't contain our excitement. So our parents had to institute a no music policy oh, for no. <laughs> for a little while. Um, and then in uh, in the fourth grade, we were watching TV. And there was a commercial on, on the television, and the soundtrack uh, was Benny Goodman playing Sing, Sing, Sing. And uh, once we heard Benny Goodman, we knew that we really wanted to, to explore jazz and play the clarinet. So that's how we got into it. In the fourth grade. So you had, a, you had a plan from the fourth grade on. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so you both started playing the same instrument or similar instruments? Sounds like woodwinds that... Yeah, we we both started playing the clarinet, uh, and then um, you know th- through through our, our when we heard Benny Goodman, and then as we explored more into jazz, we found you know uh, about the saxophone, so we added the saxophone and also the flute. So really, kind of most of the woodwinds. Now, if your parents are not, focus. if your parents are not musicians, did you have a special teacher that really guided you through those young years? Well, yeah, there's kind of um, too many to name, but sure. we did have one in particular who was uh, kind of a close mentor of ours. His name is Paul Carr. He's a saxophone player. He's from Houston, Texas, and um, he you know, really gave us all the nuts and bolts of jazz playing, and he, he really has a tradition in his playing of the kind of Texas tenor saxophone playing style. Uh, which is just, it's really robust and really bluesy. So we really, you know, have a lot to thank Paul Carr for. And um, he had a lot of great students um, who went on to be professionals. Um, I think he had five who went to Juilliard. And so he's, uh, he's fantastic. Do you know what it was about the jazz that appealed to you? You were nine years old. Your parents are playing all other kinds of music. <laughs> what was it that that got you? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think I think when we when we heard the music, uh, it was just you know classic jazz. It's just it's so expressive. Um, there's so much kind of feeling in the music, um, and you know, like when Benny Goodman plays, you know he. He plays with vibrato. He plays with uh, with a lot of dynamic qualities. He plays um, with the blues. Um, he plays with the whole tradition of of New Orleans. And uh, you know, he was influenced by players like Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet. Um, and there's just a lot. There's just a lot of emotion uh, in jazz. And so, and there's a lot of expression too. Um, you know, we we listen to. Benny Goodman, for example, and we also listened to Sidney Bechet, and we said, hey, they both play the clarinet, but they sound completely different. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of individuality uh, that can be found in jazz, and we said, well, maybe you know, if these players ended up sounding differently, maybe I can play jazz and, and end up sounding unique myself. Uh, so that was a big part of it. Was it and weird I think, yeah, for you? Just... Yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, just just to add on to that, I think I think uh, my brother and I were were just a, attracted to the ability of these artists to sound completely like themselves, 
Um, and we, the more and more we listened to recordings, we could identify these players after one note. And um, mm-hmm. something about that really attracted us. And um, it, it is funny, since we are identical twins, um, as soon as we um, started playing a lot and developing our own styles, a lot of our friends um, who could not tell us apart visually in person, they could hear us play and they could tell us apart. Ha. So how did you how did you create your own individual sounds for both of you? Yeah, well, I think um, I think first off in jazz, you, you have to be you have to be influenced um, by, you know, other musicians, you have to have kind of, uh, role models and you have to learn from them. So as soon as we could get our hands on first, like I mentioned, Benny Goodman, um, then, you know, then we listened to Artie Shaw and then we, on the saxophone, we were listening to Charlie Parker, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Dexter Gordon, uh, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, Ben Webster, just the list goes on of all these great musicians. And we kind of um, assimilated a lot of these styles into our own. Uh, and that's in jazz, that's kind of like the only way to do it. You learn from the masters and you pick what you like and you pick what you want. And then everyone inadvertently kind of ends up sounding like themselves. Was it weird for you guys to be in this world of classic traditional jazz with your friends? I or or, or were your friends also tuned into to this music? Um, that that's a great question because I think the you know the, the gamut of jazz is is it's a very wide palette, and you know there's a lot of different styles when we when we talk about jazz. Um, I think early on um there we did go to high school with a trombonist who's gone on to do great things his name is matt musselman and uh he was one of our friends and someone who we really uh kind of uh collaborated with and practiced with so i think that that's uh definitely important we were lucky to have a few other friends in high school who were kind of in the same kind of thing that we were um we also had a mentor, um, a trumpet player by the name of Dave Robinson, who's um, the brother of Scott Robinson, who's a very prolific artist in New York City. And uh, Dave Robinson was really a specialist in the early jazz music. Um, So he really taught us the music of King Oliver and Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton and that kind of thing. Which, um, which was, I'd say, a stretch for us at the time because that was, um, you know, earlier than Benny Goodman. So um, we, we found that the, the earlier you go back uh, when you study the music, the farther you can go forward. <laughs> so how did you choose the composers for this show? Because you, you seem to have a vast knowledge of, of yeah, jazz Yeah, absolutely. Canon. Well... Yeah, well, um, you know, the American songbook is just so vast and just so, so great. And, um, you know, when we were growing up, when we were getting these records, as we like to call them, uh, of all these great musicians, you know, Clifford Brown and Max Roach and Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane and you name it, Louis Armstrong, they're all playing these songs from the American songbook. There's a tradition in jazz of adopting all these songs. And so last year when we debuted Songbook Summit, we did four composers 
We did Richard Rogers. We did George Gershwin. We did Harold Arlen, and we did Cole Porter. So this summer, uh, we're doing four new composers, and all four of them, uh, Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Hoagie Carmichael, and Jimmy Van Heusen, they just had a huge impact on jazz, and they've got so many um, great songs. It, it was it was kind of a no-brainer uh, to pick these uh, this summer. There's just their body of work is is incredible, and their influence on on American music has just been uh, you know incredible. We should say that the uh, those four uh, composers sort of have their own week. It's not that you go to one show and you see all four composers. So Irving Berlin is uh, August 7th to the 12th. Jerome Kern is 14th to the 19th. Hoagie Carmichael is August 21st to 26th. And Jim, Jimmy Van Heusen is uh, August 28th to September 2nd. So uh, you can actually have uh, a, a appointment viewing with uh, <laughs> four weeks in a row up at Symphony Space on 96th Street and Broadway. Right, yeah. Each each show is is, is going to be is going to be different. Um, we're going to be playing about twelve selections on each show. We've got um, a video screen. We're playing some vintage uh, video reel from the movies and interviews with these composers and examples of their work in pop culture. And uh, so each week, um, if you come four times, you're going to get four different shows. And you say we, uh, you have a Six Peaks uh, uh, group there. So tell us about your band. Sure, sure. Yeah, the, yeah, the band members we've been working with uh, for a long time, so they're they're really close uh, with us. The uh, vocalist that we're going to be um, featuring, her name is Molly Ryan, and she just knows this music inside and out. Um, she's just kind of a specialist. And in, in there's 1930s, 1940s songs, um, and uh, our drummer Phil Stewart, and our pianist is Steve Ash, and our bassist is Clovis Nicholas. So we're going to have a, a sextet, and we're going to be throughout the show, kind of featuring all the musicians. And you know, although we're playing specific repertoire, you know, something that we always strive to do in the show is is really give the musicians as much freedom as possible. And they're going to be doing a lot of improvising, and it it makes each show um, organic and different. I know a few years ago, um, the pianist Herbie Hancock uh, released uh, an album he called The New Standard. And he used Hmm. songs by The Beatles and Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, some other more contemporary musicians. And I wondered if that song thought had occurred to you guys at some point expanding the songbook maybe songs by Sondheim, Pasek and Paul, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah absolutely I mean um, this this series that we're doing is is fairly new we did it once last summer this is the second incarnation next month Um, and yeah I mean the American songbook like you say is broad Um, you know it, it definitely includes um uh, people like the Beatles, you know, Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber, mm-hmm. uh, the list goes on. And um, uh, we, we really look forward to continuing this in, in coming years and doing some of these other um, more contemporary composers because they're absolutely a part of the lineage and the tradition 
of the American Songbook. So, um, but but this uh, this summer I think is 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 going to be really special because um, uh, you know these four composers, Irving Berlin, and uh, they're really um, they're really special. And also, uh, you know, we're starting with Irving Berlin, who first has hits in the 19 teens. And then when we finish, we're playing Jimmy Van Heusen, and a lot of his songs were written in the 1950s for Frank Sinatra. So even within uh, the show we have, there is there is a bit of progression and uh, and modernization. So you are also heading off after you wrap up at Symphony Space. You have a North American national tour with stops in Seattle, Vancouver, Portland, Los Angeles, San Francisco, just to name a few. Uh, so our listeners who are, are around the world uh, can possibly catch up with you in some of these other venues. So if you miss them at Symphony Space um, in New York here, you have a chance to catch catch up with them at peterandwillanderson.com as well. Uh, are these uh, other stops that you're going to play on this tour going to be similar types of uh, shows that you're playing up at Symphony Space or a hybrid? What are you doing there? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, really, whenever we perform, uh, we always include our, you know, favorites from the Great American Songbook. Um, so that's, you know, always uh, a staple of what we perform. Um, you know, th- these songs are just so rich and allow us to kind of express ourselves in, in a really creative way. So it's hard to get away from them. Uh, we also compose our, our own original music and pro- on our, on our West coast tour, we'll be including some of our own original songs. And, um, we, uh, you know, we, we play some, uh, Brazilian bossa nova. We, we play some, uh, more third stream kind of classical type works. We, we perform our own version of the Rhapsody in blue, um, Debussy's Claire de Lune. So we like to kind of stretch the envelope and play a little bit of everything. Um, but our, our shows out on the West Coast won't be um, specifically themed like this symphony show is. Since, since this is Broadway radio, I'd be interested to hear what are your thoughts on how the American songbook and Broadway music intersect and how they have influenced each other as distinct art forms? Sure. Well, um, I think, you know, one thing that was really, really powerful in America in the 1920s and 30s is you had all these great composers writing for Broadway. Let's just take, um, um, you know, Jerome Kern, for example. And they were they were writing for the theater. You know, they were writing songs to satisfy the stories in these um, in these you know, Broadway shows. And then you had musicians like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, who, who were, who were all about jazz. They were about swing. They were about the traditions of Chicago and New Orleans. And they started playing these songs. And that really gave a lot of these songs a second life, a second leg and kind of, gave them a staple in, in American music. So when you talk about the American songbook, yes, you definitely have to talk about Broadway because that's where it was born. That's where uh, all these composers got their start. But it was the, it was the jazz musicians and the vocalists uh, like Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, um, 
you know, Ella Fitzgerald that kind of gave these songs a second life and, and uh, furthered them any, even more. So it was really a, a union of, of uh, the jazz musicians, a lot of them African-American, and, um, and the, compo- the composers for Broadway, which were in a large part um, Jewish. Um, so I think this kind of uh, union of those two worlds really was what kind of made the American Songbook special. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. So uh, let's recap here for a second. You have Irving Berlin uh, show starting August 7th. You have Jerome Kern August 14th, Hoagie Carmichael August 21st, and Jimmy Van Heusen August 28th. So you have a lot of work ahead of you in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Peter yeah. Will Anderson can be found at PeterWillAnderson.com. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us about your upcoming shows. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. This was a pleasure. Okay, in our review section, Jan, you got over to the Irish Rep where you saw on a on a clear day you could see forever. Uh, so tell us, what do you think about it? Well, I know that uh, Michael talked about this show uh, a few uh, weeks ago, but I just got a chance to see it, and it's running through uh, Labor Day. So there's uh, plenty of time for other people to see it, too. Uh, lots of times uh, with current musicals, you hear people complaining that there isn't a hummable score. This has got one of the most hummable scores around. There are just tons of wonderful songs um, uh, on a clear day, um, Melinda, a number of other just uh, terrific uh, numbers in, in this show. The problem with this show, and it has been a problem since the very beginning is that it has a terrible book and I know often when musicals don't work the poor book writers get blamed but in this case um, the book by Alan J. Lerner just is wacky it's uh, as as a lot of listeners will know it's the story of uh this woman who works in a flower shop who wants to stop smoking goes to a, a psychologist who uh, she believes will hypnotize her and help her break her smoking habit that way. In the process of treating her, he discovers that she um, has uh, another life inside her that there's this woman from the past named Melinda who lived in the 18th century and he's fascinated and actually falls in love with this woman. Uh, our present day woman, a woman named Daisy, uh, continues going for treatment and she falls in love with the therapist. So we've got a, tr- a romantic triangle but really kind of only involving two people because Daisy and Melinda are are essentially the same person. Uh, This is one of those shows that came from the mid-60s. 
um, it's right before what we think of as the 60s, but people uh, at, during that 60 to 67 uh, period were beginning to feel restless and, and to strain against uh, conformity. And there were, this was popping up in, in pop culture everywhere. Um, the novel uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, the movie The Graduate, uh, the musical Anyone Can Whistle, uh, the play and movie A Thousand Clowns, all celebrating nonconformity, saying maybe the people who are crazy are more sane than those of us who are leading uh, straight ahead lives. Some of these worked and some of these didn't, and this one didn't. Charlotte Moore, who is the artistic director at Irish Rip, has adapted the book. She got rid of some of the uh, storylines in the original production. Daisy had her own boyfriend, but got rid of that. Uh, and she's tried to put the emphasis really smartly uh, on the songs, but it still doesn't quite work. Um, it works better than the 2011 revival that some people may remember with Harry Connick Jr., uh, where they changed Daisy to a man, and uh, he had a woman living inside of him. Uh, luckily uh, 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 for all of us, this was the breakout role of, um, oh, help me, her name just flew from Jessie my mind. Jesse Mueller. Jesse Mueller. Jesse Mueller. Thank you. Her yes. name just flew from my mind. She was yes. the saving grace of, of, of that production. We don't really have a saving grace uh, in, in, in this uh, production. Uh, the original also made the, the revival made a star of Jesse Mueller. The original made a star of Barbara Harris. Barbara Harris was 30 when she played the dual roles of uh, uh, Daisy and Melinda. Melissa Errico, who's starring in this Irish rep production, is now 48 years old. She is a lovely looking woman and she has a lovely lyric soprano voice that that still just grabs your ears and uh, uh, is wonderful to hear. But she, I hate saying this, but she seems too old for the role. And that, that sort of tilts things. And I really would love to see her in something that was more age appropriate. And as I was sitting there, I thought, wouldn't Melissa Errico make a wonderful Margaret, the mother in Adam uh, Goodall's uh, Light in the Piazza? I would Ooh. love to see oh, her yeah. in something like that. Um, uh, Stephen Bogardis uh, plays the doctor, and a guy who is unfamiliar to me, perhaps you guys know him, named John Cudia, is is fun and uh, and has an operatic voice uh, as Melinda, the 18th century woman's uh, disappointing husband. Uh, but it it just 
the the because the casting is a bit off because there's just no saving that book uh the show just doesn't work the one thing that i did love about this show and i just want to say that and then we can move on were the sets the sets were by james morgan who is uh, also the artistic director of the york theater and i I don't know why, but I didn't realize that he was such uh, a longtime set designer. And here he's done something extremely clever. Uh, as people who know the Irish Rep know, it's a small space. It's a modest, uh, uh, funded theater company. And what he has done is he's taken, he's used projections of watercolor illustrations of New York City. And they're sort of the kind of illustrations that you might find in a children's storybook. And we see the set change from then contemporary New York to the 18th century. There's even a wonderful uh, illustration of the TWA terminal uh, uh, by Eero Saarinen from the 1960s. Uh, It was just enchanting. Um, And so it's not a disappointing evening in in, in in a major sense because the songs are so lovely the singing is so good and those sets were just charming uh, it's a pleasant evening it's a pleasant su- way to spend uh, a summer evening um, and so if listeners are looking for, for something to do and really do uh, uh, love this score by Burton Lane. I don't know why I haven't said his name until mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, they, th- it, it would not hurt to spend uh, an evening with on a clear day. All right. So that is over the Irish Rep, and it was extended uh, out to September 6th. Uh, if you have taken a look at it before and you couldn't get tickets, you have another couple of extra weeks to see it. All right. Uh, next up, both Jan and Jenna got to see Fire in Dreamland down at the Public Theater. So, Jenna, why don't you start us off with Fire in Dreamland? Sure. So, there was, in 1911, a fire in Coney Island's Dreamland Amusement Park. The play isn't about that. Um, it's also not really about Hurricane Sandy, although it is set on Coney Island in the aftermath of that disaster. The These two major events that affected this one corner of New York are the touch points of Rennie Groff's new play. Uh, but they're only the catalyst for the story, and it's kind of fascinating to have these two major headline-making events be in the background and forming the groundwork for the play, but for the play not to be specifically about those events. The play itself follows Kate, a minor New York City bureaucrat, who is trying to rebuild Coney Island after Sandy. She falls for Yap, a visiting European film student who wants to make a movie about the 1911 fire. But while no human lives were lost in that disaster, he wants his film to focus on the animals who did die, including a black made lion called the Black Prince. And Kate is the practical one. She considers the logistics, like funding and getting permits. Yap is the dreamer who is only concerned with his artistic vision. Uh, You could almost call it a manic pixie dream boy, which I kind of like. (laughs) 
And their relationship and their project move forward, and we see how art can help heal after tragedy and how even the best-intentioned ambition can become toxic and destructive when it goes down the wrong path. Uh, the play is very thought-provoking, and the framework is really well-constructed. Uh, the Fire in Dreamland was a direct result of that project's rapid expansion and growth without all of the necessary safety features in place. Hurricane Sandy was the result of human-caused climate change. So connecting these disasters that were caused by people to a disastrous relationship between two people is a really fascinating idea, and Groff pulls that off very elegantly. Uh, the problem here is that Kate is supposed to be a very intelligent, competent professional, and Yap is so clearly a flake that it is very hard to believe that she would fall for him or for his visions. Uh, Rebecca Naomi Jones beautifully balances Kate's sense of responsibility with her growing artistic idealism. But some of the characters' choices just don't make sense for her, and she seems unevenly written in some places. Uh, I'm going to butcher this actor's name, so apologies in advance. Anver uh, Gyokaj, uh, please forgive me if I mispronounce that. Uh, he makes Yap a very charming visionary who can just sweep people along with his dreams by force of will. But he is so clearly flailing that it's hard to imagine that intelligent people would trust for him, much less invest significant amounts of money in him. Uh, Kyle Beltran apparently was on stage for the entire performance. Uh, I couldn't see him, but from what I've read in other write-ups, uh, he's up there marking every scene change with a clapboard. So I can't say how his performance was for those moments, but when he finally enters as a character in his own right, and I don't want to spoil too much about who he is and why he's there, uh, his awkwardness is wonderfully endearing, and he's a really he makes the character who appears in only a handful of scenes very compelling. And I would have loved to see more of his work. So I'm sorry that from where I was sitting, I could not see him. Uh, Marissa Wolf's direction is very fluid and appropriately, it is very cinematic. There are quick lightning, cha lightning lighting changes to indicate jump cuts and flashbacks and all kinds of cinematic devices. And it just it's pulled off beautifully. And it's always fascinating to see cinematic devices translated to the stage. This is one of the best examples I've seen of that device. It really works nicely. She keeps the pace very steady, even when the only action is a character walking in a circle around the stage, holding a big plastic cup. Uh, in lesser hands, it would have been a silly moment, but right here, it's uh, in her hands, it's just lovely. She did a really great job with it. Uh, Susan Hilferty's sets and costumes deserve a lot of praise for conveying a sense of place so beautifully. The main stage looks like a boardwalk, and then some planks rise up to become a bed that dominates the center of the stage for the duration of the characters' relationships. Uh, her costumes, especially those from Ms. Jones, go from business casual to sequin mermaid gowns as Kate falls deeper and deeper into Coney Island's history and its magic and watching the costumes change with the character and with the story just it's a perfect example of how costumes can help create the mood and the the location uh, gorgeous mermaid gowns and I really hope they'll be remembered for uh, awards time next year uh, this play is poignant and very thought-provoking, and if it isn't quite as thrilling as a ride on the cyclone, it is still a very intelligent look at dreams and hope and destructive relationships and how 
destruction is a very necessary part of growth. Um, Matt Tamanini did a wonderful interview with Rebecca Naomi Jones uh, on this very show a few a little while ago. Uh, her insights into the role and the show are really great. I encourage everyone to listen to that. And then it, this is definitely a show worth seeing. Uh, it's it's thought provoking and it's really lovely, and it may not be the most thrilling and exciting show, but it is it's something to make you think, and it's a nice little counter effect to the lighter fare that usually dominates in summer. All right, Jan, what did you think? I like Jenna's review better than I like the show. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I uh, it didn't work for me. I. Um, as I as I was listening to to to, to what uh, Jenna said, I, I started checking uh, my memory and and my um, uh, feelings about the various elements uh, of of the show. I found the direction to be a bit muddy because I wasn't really sure what the exact storyline and point of the of of the production was um, it seemed to be to me to be about artistic idealism and how seductive uh, it can be both for the artist and for uh, all of uh, the people around him or her. But I wasn't quite sure what Groff was saying about. Uh, uh, this uh, artistic idealism. Uh, I think part of the reason that the the the, the woman character Kate uh, falls for Yap is because uh, Enver Gojak, I think that's his name, um, is so sexy. I mean, I mean, he's just a great looking guy. Yes, and, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> and uh, you could see where you know people would be. Uh, uh, seduced by him. I thought he was, it was an interesting, uh, the one thing that I really did like was um, his performance because this character is sexy and seductive, but he's not likable. At least he's not likable to, to those of us in the mm. audience. I, I didn't think because we see that he's very self-involved and that he will do anything for the sake of uh, what he believes to be uh, his art. And I think often when actors are playing these kinds of un, uh, uh, unattractive characteristics, they want us in the audience to like them. And so they sort of indicate signal in some way, you know, well, he's actually not that bad a guy. And um I thought this was sort of fearless, where he just put this guy out there and said, you know, okay, uh, will you be seduced by him or will you see uh, uh, through him? And, uh, and, and, and that I did like. But the play itself uh, seemed uh, uh, shakier uh, for, for me um, uh, than for than it did for Jenna, but I'm I'm glad uh, I've, uh, she liked it. I think it got fair reviews. Um, yeah, uh, and so uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, worth giving uh, a, a a shot. Uh, but didn't work for me. 
All right. So as Jenna mentioned, Matt Tamanini did uh, an episode of Tell Me More with Rebecca Naomi Jones, and I'll link to that in the show notes. And they uh, talked about uh, some of the performances that happened during Pride Weekend when it was uh, lightly attended. And it's a very interesting and funny insight into uh, playing to a house that is not full and how that how that changes the dimension of it. Uh, so take a listen to that. I'll link to that in show notes. Next up, uh, Jan, you got to the classic Classical Theater of Harlem, where they had a production of Antigone over at the Richard Rogers Amphitheater. It's a beautiful outdoor theater at the Marcus Garvey Park. So tell us about that. I'm really happy to talk about this because the last few times I've been on the show, I've just been bad-mouthing one show after another. And I really like this show. So I'm really uh, excited to talk about a show that I uh, liked. Um, I suppose I went into this a little biased because Antigone is one of my favorite plays. I uh, fell in love with it in junior high school, and I guess lots of young girls fall in love with uh, the character of Antigone. As uh, people will remember, this is part of, this is actually the third part of the Oedipus cycle. Um, Oedipus and his wife and mother, Jocasta, are already dead. There is a civil war in Thebes of their, their, their homeland, and their two sons are on opposite sides of the civil war and end up killing one another. The throne goes to Jocasta's brother, Creon, and he declares that the son who fought for Thebes uh, for the government will be buried with all rights and honors. The brother who fought against uh, Thebes in essence, Creon, uh, Polynices is this brother. His body will be left out for carry-on. Birds and animals can just have at it. There will be no rituals for, for him. There are two sisters, and one of the sisters, Antigone, decides that she is going to bury her brother. And the question here that Sophocles is getting at is obviously which law is greater, the law of morality or the law of uh, uh, that's created by by man, and the fact that she dares to go out and to defy the laws of man to pay respect to her brother. You know, great romance for um, for for the twelve year old me. Um, so I went to see this production because there'd been a lot of good word of mouth about it. It's performed um, at the Richard Rogers Amphitheater in Marcus Garvey Park, which is on 124th Street and um, uh, Madison, between 5th and Madison Avenues, uh, uptown in Harlem, uh, where the Classical Theater of Harlem is is based. Uh, they used an adaptation by Paul Roche, but they use that as sort of a basis. Uh, they have set this production in a dystopian future that is kind of referring to 
America of the future because the production pays homage to the Black Lives Matter movement in very significant uh, ways. What really makes this um, production work, though, is the fact that it is such a visceral production. It includes wonderful, uh, dynamic choreography by a woman named Tiffany Ray Fisher, who was new to me, but whose work I'd like to see uh, more of. There is a lot of music. Um, you get uh, pageantry, uh Video projections are used, and and it really echoes back to the way the Greeks did it without the video projections. But a lot of music and dance, and the Greeks used masks. There aren't masks used here. The acting here is a little uneven. I'm, I'm not going to pose this as a perfect production by any means, but... Uh, the, the visceral nature, the use of the chorus, the traditional Greek chorus here is composed of three singers and five dancers who are all terrific. And the fact that as happens when people go to Shakespeare in the park, we're sitting outside. It was a lovely uh, summer evening, uh, the night that, that, that I went. There was uh, some comedy uh, involved, uh, crowd-pleasing kinds of lines that made allusions to things that were going on uh, in, in the neighborhood. Uh, we started off this um, episode of uh, of the show talking about jazz, and the show when I when I got to uh, Marcus Garvey Park, Jazzmobile, which is a long time institution which takes jazz musicians around to uh, various uh, locations in New York. Jazzmobile uh, was was playing, and uh, and then they ended and they switched over to uh, Antigone. And so some of the people had come for the jazz and some of the people had just come because it was nice to be outdoors and it's free and unlike uh, uh, Shakespeare in the Park, you don't have to line up, you you just come and, 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 and sit down. Um, and so there were all kinds of people there with all kinds of, I'm, I'm assuming, interests. The man next to me had just come from seeing The Rock in the new movie Skyscraper, um, which he was talking about. Um, there are all these kinds of people, and everyone was totally wrapped. The, I looked around at one point, and the entire audience was literally leaning in. Um, it's a terrific production. It only runs to the end of next weekend. I'm really uh, sorry. There's uh, the weather forecast isn't great, but if there is an evening when uh, uh, there isn't rain and uh, and you just want to be entertained in a very different way and by uh, by plays that a play that we don't see a lot of. And I wish we did see more uh, Greek plays because unlike in Shakespeare, the, the, the Greek dramas have great roles for women. You know, we got Medea, Electra, Phaedra um, here, Antigone. And to just see a really 
uh, all encompassing and, and entertaining production for free in a park. Um, this would this would be a good one to 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 catch. Wow, that's a great endorsement there. And uh, not only that, but uh, the price is right. So let's all flood. <laughs> flood the Marcus Garvey Park and uh, see a good production of Antigone. And, you know, one of the other things they're going to do is in, in September, they're going to do a companion production, um, and it's going to be called um, Antigone in Ferguson. And so they're really pushing the Black Lives Matter connection. And that production, I, I'm told, has been traveling around, but it has got... Um, uh, Tamar Tooney, Paul Giamatti, uh, David Strathern. I mean, it's a really high-powered, interesting cast, um, and it's going to be um, a, a companion production to this one. So I can hardly wait for that. Uh, uh, Antigone and Ferguson is a companion project of, uh, of Theater of War. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's been traveling around and doing... Uh, really some amazing things. So I'll have a link to the Theater of War production in the show notes as well. All right. So um, from uh, the telling of classics to the retelling of classics as uh, Jenna gets to Mamma Mia, here we go again. So Jenna, tell us about this (laughs) movie of the uh, juggernaut Broadway hit. Uh, yes, here we go again. So it is this week is 10 years to the week since the first film, uh, the film version of Mamma Mia debuted, which I can't quite get over. Really? I yes, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's been 10 years since that movie came out. And yes, we are back on Donna Sheridan's Greek island, where she famously tried to juggle three former lovers who might be the father of her daughter, Sophie, all while getting Sophie ready for her wedding. And it's all set to Abba's greatest hits. And uh, tune in, tune out now if you don't want spoilers, because there are going to be spoilers uh, <laughs> all over the place here. Skip ahead. There's some good parts ahead of here. Um So the original musical was very light and fun and fluffy, and the film was the perfect summer movie for anyone who doesn't want explosions or shoot-em-ups, but still wants something just enjoyable. It's literally a beach movie. I mean, how much of it takes place on this beautiful Greek island with beautiful waters all around? So it's a great summer film. The sequel gets a little bit darker. Um, Yes, the rumors were true. Donna has died uh, off screen. She's been gone for a year now. And Sophie is turning her taverna into an upscale hotel and getting ready for its opening. So naturally, Donna's friends and former lovers come back to offer their support and ABBA songs ensue. We also get flashbacks to how Donna met the three men who could be her baby daddy and how she came to live on the island. So it becomes people in the present learning how to live with grief and move on with their lives. And also Donna having two casual flings and then having her heart broken by a third partner and then facing raising a baby all by herself. So it's a little bit more serious than the original was. It goes into some darker places. Uh, All Parker takes over the direction from Philidda Lloyd and keeps the energy up nicely balancing the poignant moments with the comedy it never gets too dark uh 
it mostly, like I said, it's a fun summer film and it mostly is light and fluffy. It's over the top and ridiculous. And uh, Parker also wrote the screenplay with so much exposition in the opening scenes. I mean, the first 10 minutes are all just can you take this letter to mail it out and invite all these people to the opening of our lovely new hotel, which is going to happen in one week. And I'm barely exaggerating. That's the level of dialogue we're dealing with here. I mean, this, this is hardly Sophocles, but again, it's, it's not meant to be, this is all a vehicle for the music and it does that just fine. Um, the movie does suffer from several problems, most noticeably lack of Meryl Streep itis. Uh, Lily James steps in as young Donna and she works admirably to make this character into a character in her own right. She does fine. She sings fine. She acts fine. She's no Meryl. Uh, no one is. Uh, it also suffers from a lack of good ABBA songs to use because most of the best ones were used in the original. So this means we get some second tier songs and then recycled numbers from the first show. Uh, Dancing Queen, Mamma Mia, I Have a Dream, these are all used over again. And it kind of becomes a reminder of when the songs were used to better effect. Uh, but, you know, those are ultimately those are quibbles. This is just meant to be a fun, silly comedy. Uh, the cast has a lot of fun with the film. It really shows Christine Baranski. God bless Christine Baranski. Uh, seriously, I, I want to get a Kickstarter together to have you know, an evening at Symphony Space of Christine Baranski standing on the stage with a telephone book. And she will literally open it up. Anderson, Adeline. And she could just read. She is just that good. Comic delivery. She gets the biggest laughs in the show with, you know, again, the script is not great. She's not given massive amounts of material to work with. And she nails every little scene that she's in. Julie Walters is also very funny and winsome. Amanda Seyfried is cute and quirky as a now older and wiser Sophie trying to be the grown up and learning how to deal with grown up challenges. Um, uh, Stellan's, Colin Firth and Stellan Skarsgård are both very funny as two of the possible baby daddies, although Skarsgård gets a fat joke in that really made me uncomfortable. That was not necessary. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, he sings again. Moving on. Uh, Cher uh, appears in the film, and this has been all the commercials, so no real spoiler here. She plays Meryl's mother. Uh, Cher is literally three years older than Meryl Streep. Um, I'm not quite sure how this happened. I don't know why Cher needs to be the grandmother. Uh, and this also brings in some play, uh, some elements of uh, inconsistencies between the um, between the original movie and this. There are some shifts in uh, the narrative when characters are talking about the past in the first film. It doesn't always translate exactly in this one. Uh, most notably, they mentioned uh, in the original, Meryl says that her mother kicked her out of the house when she became pregnant with Sophie. And, you know, watching the film 10 years ago, I did a quick bit of math. They keep emphasizing that Sophie is 20 years old. She's very young, just 20. I'm doing the math here and thinking, OK, but you were 40 at the time. So um, <laughs> in her defense, yeah. None of that appears here. Uh, Cher makes her appearance late in the film. Of course, in grand Cher style, she walks in. She comes in on a helicopter and walks out dressed all in white with this blonde wig. And I mean, it's Cher. She is wonderful, though. I think it's interesting uh, seeing performers uh, similarly aged dancing and jumping around. Christine Baranski gets a high kick in. I mean, I 
couldn't quite do the measurement, but it looked like 180 degrees when she does this high kick. And Christine Baranski is 66 years old, and she's still kicking that high. Uh, Cher is uh, similarly, she's in her early 70s, but she walks very stiffly. She looks very awkward. And of everybody in the movie, she seems to be the most uncomfortable of everyone there. But she's releasing an album of ABBA songs, so what do I know? Maybe she was having a wonderful time. Uh, I couldn't tell. Um, It's an enjoyable film. It doesn't do anything that you really wouldn't expect, except, like I said, it does examine grief and moving on with your life. I kind of appreciated that they, if they were going to go the route of Donna's gone, they don't just mention that she's gone and leave it alone. Uh, Her presence does dominate. I mean, even when she's not there, Meryl Streep dominates this movie. Uh, Her presence dominates the story and... Uh, it does deal with grief and closure and how families have to help each other heal. And I really appreciated that. That was a a nice bit of depth in an otherwise silly, fluffy, forgettable movie. Uh, It's utterly, like I said, I keep saying the word silly, and I mean that in the best possible way. If you want a fun summer film and you don't want lots of violence or explosions, this is a great one to see. Just turn your mind off, put your feet up, and enjoy the music. Were you a fan of the uh, the Broadway show? You're going to hate me for this. I never actually saw the Broadway show. Oh, no, I love okay. you. Never. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, it's, it was just not my thing. I'm not a huge ABBA fan to begin with. I have nothing against their music, but it's just not really my scene. So it, I was just not all that excited to see it. And I kept thinking, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to Oh, it closed. And I know. <laughs> well, twelve one of years. the longest yeah, running shows years. on Broadway I sat there history. Thinking, oh, one of these days I'll get around to this. And oops, never, never quite near, never quite near the Winter Garden. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it had so many wonderful Broadway uh, actors in it. I kept. I want when Carolee Carmelo went in. I was. I actually really wanted to see it then because, again, she's another person I will see standing there reading the phone book. Uh, Carolee Carmelo is fantastic. Uh, yeah, wonderful performers went into that show, and I kept. It was one of those things that was always on my list, but there was always some little off-Broadway thing that I needed to catch before it closed next week. And this will always be there. I'll always have a chance to see that one. And just never got around to it. So, no, I've never seen Mamma Mia live. Are you Uh, a fan of chess? I do like chess, yes. Uh, But wait, which version of chess are we talking about? Uh, And again, I have never seen it live. I've listened to many recordings, but uh, no, I've never seen chess live. There's a rumor that you're going to be able to see chess live soon. Oh, God, please let it be true. Please let it be true. Yes. Jan, what were you going to say? No, I, I was just wondering um, if I could judge by how much someone liked the stage version, they might like the movie, because uh, I was not a big fan of the stage version. I also I'm wonder... saying this very quietly. So. Sure, sure. No, I, I totally get that. And I also wonder if there's a difference between paying uh, $15 for a movie ticket and paying Mm. $200 for a Broadway ticket, how much you expect. If you pay 15 bucks on a hot July day to sit down in air conditioning, have some popcorn and a soda and just relax, you're going to get exactly what you paid for. If you're spending 200 bucks to see a live show, you expect more, I would say. It's a bigger investment. 
And so I would think, you know, generally, and, and uh, there are a lot of people who do want to pay 200 bucks for just a fun, yeah, silly, a lot. exactly. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. ran, it ran yeah. for 12 years. So yeah, obviously I'm pretty it, sure it, their grosses were in the billions, Yeah, not, not uh, in the millions, clearly. in the billions. So there are plenty of people who do want exactly that. There is nothing at all wrong with that. Yeah. It's, yeah. but you know, if you're expecting something a bit deeper, then maybe you would be a little put off with, I just spent all this money and didn't get what I wanted. Uh, you, know, you should just know what you're going in for and know that if, if it's worth what you're willing to pay. So, yeah, so, this is, uh, yeah. Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again had a rumored budget of $75 million and a host of extraordinarily talented people who many of them have been on Broadway. If they had taken $75 million and put those people in a room and tried to make a Broadway show, would the art have been better? And that's the mm. that, that's my thought thought about these type of things. The opportunity cost of Mamma Mia brought you know created a lot of jobs on on yeah. Broadway, sure. Um, but if Mamma Mia didn't play for twelve years at the Winter Garden, I don't think the Winter Garden would have sat empty. And I think that many, although we might have seen five or six different shows in that spot over 12 years, I think just as many people would have been employed and we might have had better art. Sure. Um, and I do, I do consider Mamma Mia as being um, an anchor, a bookmark of sort, a, a, uh, a measuring post um, of something on Broadway. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, it it was a game changer. It absolutely was. That it ushered in the era of big jukebox musicals, just the way Jersey Boys a few years later ushered in "We'll Tell Our Own Story with Our Own Music" jukebox musicals. So it was yes, it was definitely a game changer. And I'm sorry, I, did it run for twelve years or was it a bit longer? It opened in '01. When did it close? I'm trying. Now I don't remember. Uh, yeah, more than a decade. Definitely that. Yeah. I'm not going to slag the show because it, it 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 gave obviously a lot of people a lot of pleasure and yeah. and I'm I'm all for that. Uh, it just wasn't for me, and I don't think I'm going to put this movie on my list either. Yeah, it's not for everybody, but yeah. obviously billions of dollars worth of people did want to be part of this, and mm-hmm. you know. I certainly hope they enjoyed it. It's like uh, it's like Peter Felicia always says: uh, a good critic is a matchmaker. You've got to find the right audience for the right show. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Mamma Mia had a had its right audience. And obviously, long enough to last for over a decade on Broadway and tours and London and everywhere. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, the people who enjoyed that will enjoy this, and they'll appreciate having some uh, a darker storyline that deals with uh, deeper emotions. So, and like I said, it's just turn off your mind, kick back, have fun, enjoy the silliness, and it's a good summer film. Get a big soda and just put your feet up and enjoy it. So, according to IBDB, Mamma Mia ran from uh, 2001 to 2013 at the Winter Garden and opened up at the Broadhurst from 2013 to 2015. So, it ran 12 years at the Winter Garden and two uh-huh. more years at the Broadhurst and okay. 5,758 performances. Wow. How, uh, does it say where that is on the list of longest running musicals? Uh, no. Let's see what the... 
longest running Broadway shows, Phantom, blah, 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 Phantom, Chicago, Lion King, Cats, Les Mis, Wicked, Chorus Line, Calcutta, Mamma Mia, Ninth. Ninth, okay. Ninth. Mm-hmm. Uh, running shows behind it. Uh, we have Book of Mormon coming up, a couple thousand behind it. Um, currently running. Huh. So it's likely to hold that place yeah. for a while. It is That's... likely to hold it for a Great. while. I was looking. Where the heck is Wicked here? Maybe this. Oh, Wicked's oh, ahead Wicked of it. Sixth. I thought. Yeah, Wicked's ahead yeah. of it. Yeah, that. I was looking below it, and I was like, not seeing it. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Wicked, well, Lion King's still running. Chicago's still running. Phantom's still running. So, that'll be eventually Wicked will move into fourth place at least. Wicked's at six thousand one hundred forty-nine. Phantom's ahead twelve thousand six hundred. Uh, Chicago's Ooh. nine thousand. Lion King's eight thousand six hundred. So, uh, amazing. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right, so that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts you can get. All of our shows from Broadway Radio, including uh, Jan and Jenna's shows as well. Uh, contact information for Jan, for Jenna, for me, uh, can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as notes to some of the things that we lo- talked about today, including uh, Peter and Will Anderson and the Songbook, uh, Songbook Summit up, up at Symphony Space. Uh, so let's get on to trivia. Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? And where are you? <laughs> well, I'm on my way to Dayton, Ohio, uh, where there's a marvelous play contest every year called Future Fest. So uh, that's why I'm not around this week. But I do have an answer to the trivia question. Okay. <laughs> the question was, since June 1996, more than 22 years now, there have only been 72 days that Herb Gardner hasn't been represented on Broadway. Let me give a big hint. You'll find the answer in a recent biography of a famous man who actually had a hit Broadway show named after him, one that celebrated his career. Okay, so a revival of A Thousand Clowns, Herb Gardner's play, started previews on June 12, 1996 and closed on August 10, 1996. Seventy-two days later, the revival of Chicago opened, and it's still there, as you well know. And what, you may ask, does Herb Gardner have to do with Chicago? Well, as Kevin Winkler tells us in his new book, Big Deal, when Verdon let it be known that Herb Gardner wrote the entire monologue that Roxy Hart gives before she goes into the number Roxy. So, who knew? Well, Corey Winslow did, and so did John Moss and Josh Israel. So, this week's question. What song... Not a show, mind you, but a song from a 60s musical that got unanimous raves but lost the Tony became a children's picture book. Okay, so if you have an answer to that, you can email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Genesis Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. 
Bye. Thank you.